Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Cove. I'm Taylor Mason. Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spring from the Wallaroos. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Yep. Yes, you are indeed listening to Not The Footy Show, another podcast coming your way, and we're really looking forward to this show, as we do every time. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Well, John, as usual, lots happening in the world of sport. I'm pleased to say that we've managed to pin down the CEO of the Perth Wildcats, Nick Marvin, and we'll be having a chat with him a little bit later. A man I have nothing but admiration for. Oh, he's done a fantastic job at the Wildcats, and we were talking just before, he's probably the best sports administrator in the country, on on his record, if you look at the moment. And, of course, now they're running the Perth Lynx as well. And they had a tremendous season, and that can only be good for women's basketball. Absolutely, and it's interesting, and stay tuned because he does talk about the disappointment they found uh, with the support of the women's game. He thought that there would be more support in the community for the women's game, and I know that there's a lot of sports feel that way, that they think that the women's game will get more support than it actually does, and yet there are lots of people jump up and down saying, oh yeah, women's sport deserves this, but then when the crunch comes, they won't put their hand in their pocket. Well, a few episodes of Not The Footy Show ago we uh we spoke about this and it it just basically boils down to eyes on television sets and that's what's going to rate your sport as being successful or not in the modern era now it's a really tough one i think and i do feel for the women because they are incredibly dedicated but the one thing i think i'm beginning to find with sport now and it, it it is a bit of a generalization so i'm not saying it totally across the board but Having had dealings with a lot of women, women's sport in terms of the Matildas, uh, the W League, Netball, uh, Hockey Roos, etc. And now if you look at the Kookaburras and you look at some of the professional athletes, um, the difference is amazing in that they are more grounded, the ones that are on the lesser pay. They, are, in my opinion, work very very hard and are totally committed I think some of the others are but it's a different commitment and I was talking to someone who'd switched from one of the high profile teams to work with one of the hockey teams and he was saying you get the word culture which we've raised thrown around he goes trust me he goes in the professional teams he goes culture he said it's just a word that is bandied around he said with the team he is now involved with he goes it is a real thing it is it is a standard that is set an expectation that is put on everyone that comes into that group and it is something that is passed on yeah i've i've often thought culture is something you find on cheese and about that's the only place you find it um i agree with you yeah i, th- I think it's just a buzzword but there's just a few of them there's a few of those buzzwords in sport, and you know, sport often finds itself getting caught out because it uses those buzzwords, and suddenly it finds itself in a position where it never really had authority in that area anyway, and now they've got to try and pretend they do. I do think we try to overcomplicate it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And also blow it up to be more important than it is. At the end of the day, it is just a game. Well, yeah, that's... Essentially, that's what we're all in it for and what, what we get our enjoyment on is what happens on the pitch. As much as these issues outside of the pitch can affect and blah, blah, that's the core business of sport is their game. Now, I just want to touch on Rugby WA and the situation 
that they find themselves yes. in. Obviously, they're not having a great season with the Western Force, and there are a lot of rumours going that the franchise will be moved over, over east because crowds are beginning to come down at their home games. They haven't won at home so far this season, and everyone is very worried that that will move. And what worries me, though, is where that will leave rugby in Western Australia, in that you have people playing in the Pindan Premier League who are now sort of in the squads, development squads for the Western Force. Where will these guys go? And will we see those better players then up sticks and move over east? And it will actually devastate rugby in Western Australia. I think it is more than just moving the franchise over to the East Coast just because there's a better, for that word, rugby culture or rugby tradition, let's say, uh, on the East Coast than there is in Western Australia. I know it's a financial burden, but maybe you've got to look at what you're offering the players and and trying to do it a little bit a different way. I don't know, but it, it just to me, it worries me the impact because you have invested so much into it, the impact it would have and the devastating effect it could have on the game here long term. It's an interesting one. I mean, a, a lot of this argument is going to be come down to what the broadcasters say. I mean, at the moment, the broadcasters will probably be happy with a game in Perth because it fits in nicely in their broadcast schedule. They can have New Zealand, East Coast, West Coast, maybe even South Africa. They can slot these games in. If you put another team on the East Coast, that's going to muddy it for the broadcasters a little bit more. As far as rugby goes, well, do you want to, do you want to be part of a national thing or not? If you don't want to be known as a national sport, get out of Perth, go and sit on the East Coast, and we'll forget about rugby. And that's what will happen. The, the thing I find interesting, and I've been trying to get an interview through the force with Michael Foley now since the beginning of the year before the season started, and I keep being given various excuses as to why the timing's not good. I'll admit I've been overseas as well, but it has been very difficult to try and pin them down. But the one thing that as well concerns me is the growth of Super Rugby, and I've touched on this before, in that if you look in Europe, when rugby turned professional, they tried to reduce the number of games because with test matches mm. and then an expanded competition, the players were worn out. And yet the Southern Hemisphere, which to me has always led rugby, certainly in the professional era, has now gone the other way. We've expanded it. There's now a test match in the middle. There's going to be then the uh, the championship that they have the rugby championship yep. with argentina all blacks south africa and australia and you suddenly go hang on a sec how many games are these guys playing and how are their bodies going to hold up well sooner or later they're going to have to uh, include japan in that as if japan's playing super rugby through the sun wolves then eventually they're going to end up playing in the rugby championship you'd think so it gets more crowded and yet the island nations as we banged on oh, for seven or eight years Islanders. get absolutely shafted again yeah, and, and we've seen a case of an athlete recently picking and choosing to join. And, and, you know, rugby should have come out and said, no, Jared, you're not, you don't qualify. You're not going. I think they made a massive mistake by including him in that uh, series in London. Was well, it London? Yes, it yeah. was, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting listening to the coach's comments. I get the feeling he might have been told. I think he was, and and he while he was happy to meet Jared before the tournament and, all, and discuss it earlier. I think it was in January or December or sometime or after the end of the NFL. That um, you know he he having had those conversations with him to say what he's saying now about nothing's guaranteed and we've got all these other great players and we don't need him essentially. 
Why did he go for it in the first place? And why did the Fijians allow it to happen? I'm sure there was pressure from somebody at the top and maybe Fiji thought that a player like Jared Hayne would bring a lot of attention to their team, may even attract those sponsors that they need to keep the team going. You know, it's we don't know. You know for the rest of the rugby world, Jared Hayne will be a novelty at the at the Olympic Games because he's this guy that's, you know, played rugby league and gone to America. So he'll be a novelty player. So he's hardly going to be making headlines for them. The rest of the world doesn't care about Jared Hayne. It's only us here in Australia, or maybe New Zealand, that have a real, oh, Jared Hayne thing going on. The rest of the world doesn't. Well, I think there'll be a lot of nations that will be quite pleased if he does play because they'll think, well, it gives them a better chance to knock Fiji off and get into the medals. Oh, and look, it's a, it's a tournament, whether it's the Olympic Games, World Cups or anything like that. It doesn't matter how good you are going into it. It's how good you are at the end of it. And so they'll find out soon enough. This is Gary Lineker, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Another tournament that's coming up, John, uh, that is a big one. I was surprised, actually, that it is actually bigger than the World Cup, and that is the Euros uh, so the European Championships for football, and it, the reason it's bigger when you, I suppose when you think about it, that's where football is really dominant outside of South America. And so when you've got the cream of Europe all playing, the viewing figures are going to be huge. Whatever happens, the thing I think that's really sad is it's being hosted in France, and I was talking to someone this week, and ticket sales apparently have been really poor. Uh, Understandably. People, yeah, because of the terrorism. People are just not going to go to France. And I actually am going to be in London, and someone said, oh, you should go across for... And I looked at it, the quarterfinals, semifinals, and, and the final, I could actually still get tickets. Wow. Now, you think normally those games you would not be able to get, uh, but there were still tickets available ahead, when I looked. They, you would have thought they were sold out months ahead. Yeah, it's going to be interesting who who's going to win. I mean, obviously... I'm pleased that Wales are playing. I think that'll be great that they finally made it to is a Ryan major Is Ryan Giggs tournament. in that side? Pardon? Is Ryan Giggs in that side? Uh, I think he's retired now, so <laughs> he, he must be ruining it a little bit. Yeah. But, but, you know, a lot of people are saying France, because they're the host nation, will be there. I think you've got to look at Germany and Belgium are going to be key teams. Will Portugal Spain, Spain is going to be around the place. Pardon? Spain and Portugal will be around the place. Yeah, I think they will. I think Belgium's probably the one to look out for. If they click, I think they could be good. Portugal, do they rely too much on Ronaldo? Yes. Yeah, in my opinion, they do as what well. What about the Italians? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, Italy didn't. Uh, they did qualify, but I don't think that they will be. I don't think they're going to do anything. Although you can never discount them because they love a big tournament. Um, They've Northern got a Ireland history at big tournaments. Pub? They've got a pretty good history. Oh, they do. They do. I mean, Czech Republic have always done well in the Euros as well. But uh, and then there's Greece, former title holder. <laughs> true, true, <laughs> very true. I'm afraid I don't think England yeah. will win it. Oh well, well uh, the fair bet here is: uh, will they get to the quarters? Yeah. <laughs> Poor England. I mean, I I would actually really like to see England do the home of football. You know, you'd like to see them do well sometime or other. But they they have almost they've got the gun cocked and pointing at their foot already in some respects. Yeah, I do think though Roy Hodgson seems to have 
controlled some of the hype around the team in that, you know, he he's not come out with outrageous statements and he's downplayed anyone that's come out with any outrageous statements. And he's been also very... I think he's played the politics of all that very well. And I think he's got a fairly balanced team that seems to be performing well. He hasn't always gone with who the press want in the team. Uh, he's been very much his own man. But, yeah, look, it would be it would be great if they could get to a semi-final again. I mean, 96, I think, was the last time they managed to do that. Was uh, that a Beckham game? Uh, a handball game? It was when Terry Venables, no, so no, I don't think Beckham was... That was 94. 90, yeah. I think Beckham wasn't in the side back then, okay. so... But, uh, no, it'll be interesting to see. But just on the England game, obviously, the Socceroos played against them. And i I got to say, look, the Socceroos played OK. I don't think there's a lot of media was saying they were outstanding and they took the game to England. But you have to put it in context in that England was preparing for a major tournament. We're never going to go 100%. And the way they actually exposed Australia on the counter-attack, to me, was a real sign of where Australia's at. I thought Australia's midfield wasn't too bad in, in that Rogic, Yedinak played well and and Cruz. Uh, the rest of the team was a little bit, I think, struggled a little bit. But the, the one that, what I was going to say is the thing that bugs me is when you get certain media outlets give players player ratings. So if you if you look at five, you think five is average or what you would expect from a player because it's one to ten. So I would say five means he's played to his ability, not been better, not been worse. So you know if he goes to a four, he's so played again. below. Yeah, he's played below par. But there was not a single player in these ratings that got below a six. And you go, hang on a sec, you got beat. And there were a few players, and I'm not going to single out players who didn't have good games. It happens. Yeah. I mean, that's sport. That's life. You know, everybody has an off day. But don't just... If you're going to do these ratings, make them mean something and be honest. Well, how should these ratings be conducted? Like you, you said there, if a player's having a standard game for them, they're playing at their normal standard, is that a five or is it a seven? Is, to me, is, it's a five. Is, yeah. is a standard game for Cristiano Ronaldo the same as a standard game for another player and given any given player. Well, I think, I think uh, you're you judging know? every player by the standard that they have set. So they've set their own benchmark. Now, again, why so I don't... So that would like... be an individual... The standard would apply only to that individual. That's not... how I see it. Okay. Not not necessarily as a compared to everybody else on the field standard player rating. No, no. I think it's by the, the standard, the benchmark that they have set by the performances that, that they have put in as an individual. Now, the thing I don't like about things like this is you never know what the coach has said to them as to how he wants them to play yeah. and in what role. So exactly the point that you're saying, you know, the coach might decide a Cristiano Ronaldo, I want you to play slightly more centrally than out wide and so, see how you go. On, or I want you to cut in every time you get the ball to do this. Now, if he, he may do that, it's not his natural game and he may fail miserably. And then he gets a really bad rating in something like that. But because, and that's why I don't actually like ratings like that. Because I think it's very harsh. Because you never know what a coach has said to a player. Or what he wants that player to do. Go and stand in the corner, Cristiano. Because don't go near the ball. You'll drag two defenders and you'll leave one of us free. So just go and stand in the corner there and don't do anything all game. So uh, anyway, it's a difficult a one. Move. But, uh, you know, look. We'll see. Australia, they got, didn't win the game. 
but uh, I think a few people hyped up their performance to be a little bit better than it actually was. You know, 2-1, playing England, uh, 2-1's a sort of in-between result. It's a, it's a five as a result, isn't it? game again, John, it was, yeah. you know, it was an own goal that was scored by uh, Australia, so... Yeah, but you know what? To score an own goal, you have to be having a shot. No, you it know was a cross. I mean? Well, either way, you've got to be. You're putting pressure on the defence. If you, if teams are letting in own goals, I think. Not it, too I many think though, if goals. you were a coach, you would look at the defender and go, "Man, what the hell were you doing?" <laughs> okay. And, and I've had a few of those. <laughs> oh, look, we, again, it goes. We've all had that. What would you give him then for the own goal? I mean, he, does he go down to a four? It might have been his first international goal. <laughs> May well be. I think I'd have to check that. I think you might be right. I think it could be. Do they do they count own goals on as? A, Sadly, not. Oh, if you're going to call it an own goal, it should go against your name. Well, I remember Swindon had a player. I think it, I th- I'm trying to think of what his Christian name was. Coleman was his surname, and he scored more own goals than he did goals for his team. Oh, really? Well, a couple of years ago in hockey, they brought in this rule that. If you hit it outside the D, from outside, it off a defender. It was a goal, and that was just a nightmare. Everybody hated it. It was a well, terrible. The goalkeepers really hated it. Oh, yeah. Well, as a defender, you were never sure whether to play at the ball or not, because you just, you know, it was scary. Anyway, it happens in sport. Hi, I'm Derek Underwood, and this is the Not the Footy Show. Now, as we said, we do have a special guest on the show today, and uh, we're very pleased to say that we managed to sit down, or I managed to sit down, with the CEO of the Perth Wildcats and the Perth Lynx, and try and get a little bit of an insight as to how he recruits his players, how he's managed to create such a successful franchise, because they've made the finals now, I think it's 30 years in succession which is a record supposedly in the world. There's some people are questioning that, but in basketball, it's beaten the Boston Bruins record. Um, so it is, whatever you want to say, it is a phenomenal achievement. And this is Nick Marvin. Nick Marvin, welcome back to Not The Footy Show. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been a fantastic year for the Wildcats and also the Perth Lynx. And, I mean, everyone is saying that this is the most successful team in WA sport. Do, do you ride along with that one? Not really sure about that. I, d- I suppose it depends how you measure success. Um, but for us, the last few years have been very good. and We've been very lucky, so uh, we're certainly enjoying uh, what we do. And it's just a pleasure to to represent the state, really, on a national level, especially being so far away from the other cities. Well, certainly the Wildcats had a very successful year, and I think it was, what is it, the 30th year consecutively that they'd made a final series. I mean, that is a remarkable run of success. What do you put that down to? Well, a lot of luck. Uh, I think people underestimate the importance of luck in sport. We could quite have easily have lost many of those years and not made the finals, so I think a lot of luck. Um, but also a lot of uh, pride. I think some, something that we in WA uh, don't realise is that I think we're quite an insular city and state, and we take seriously our representation at any level as a state, and I think that may have been a 
significant part of our success because I think we try very hard to compete with the cities on the East Coast and uh, thanks to the legends that we've had in the past, uh, we have a really a good record that uh, all West Australians should be proud of. The one thing that strikes me as an outsider looking in is your recruitment always seems to be pretty spot on. What do you, how do you account for that? Well, in my time, and by that I, I really talk about the last seven years, uh, even though I've been here for ten, but certainly over the last seven years, uh, again, we've been fortunate, uh, but also we've been very focused on the individual and their character as the most important part of our recruiting, uh, far more than talent. Now, part of that is because I'm not that well-versed in the sport, and so my focus has always been on the character uh, first. But I think that has had a part to, uh, to play, and I think if you look around our organization, um, one of the joys of coming to work every day is of the 50 or 60 staff we have here, including players and coaches, uh, I can truly say that they're all good people, um, and that helps. That helps succeeding on and off the court, and I would put that to being the major reason of our success, certainly in, in my seven years here. I mean, it, it is remarkable, because if you look at some of those players that have been recruited, when they have come, they've not wanted to go back, they've wanted to stay. Uh, yes and no. We've had a lot of players that have wanted to stay, and, and we've been very grateful uh, for that. People like Sean, uh, Radish, Damien Martin, and you know Jesse Wagstaff, and, and those types of guys, Matty Knight. Um, and then there are many we've lost, uh, and in a good way. Uh, uh, the guys like James Ennis, uh, more recently Casey Prather, um, men that uh, weren't quite as successful uh, as they were after they finished with us uh, compared to when they arrived. And it's always, you know, sad and, and when we lose them, but uh, hopefully they go on to bigger and better things. So a part of what we do is to keep good people, and, and part of what we do is to uh, get some people to be better uh, when they are finished with us than when they started, and hopefully go on to bigger and better things. You said you look at the character of the person. What are the traits you're looking for when you're sort of looking at those characters? It's not very complicated. Um, we, we're simply looking for good men and now good women. We often ask the question about legacy uh, when we hire people, about um, not just questions about what happens while they come through the door of our organization, but, but what happens when they walk out. So questions like, are they prepared for life after the sport? Not just in terms of their ability to earn a living or their ability to be educated, which we encourage and support and help with, but more about what their time with us looks like uh, as to what type of human being walks out of the organization, as in um, what is the mark they've left behind, what is the footprint they've left behind in this society. And I think that changes the dynamic of their mindset, but also the people that we recruit. Um, in general, though, we are looking for good people, and uh, uh, and I know that's that's a bit simplistic, but uh, it really is about uh, men and women that want to give back and that want to make a difference. And usually, um, that separates uh, the ones that are selfish uh, athletes that 
have nothing else on their agenda except winning games, which we don't necessarily think fits our culture. And those that want to um, succeed and compete, uh, but also give back. Listening to that, would that be why there is a very strong bond between the team and their fans? Because that's the one thing that strikes me is the Wildcats have a very good connection between their fans and the players. I believe so, and I would certainly hope so. Uh, but certainly, uh, well, everyone here is well aware that um, that we survive and we exist and we pay our bills um, from the fans, whether they are members who pay uh, to come and watch us play, or people who come and watch one game or fourteen games, or uh, the ones that just support us. In any other way, we're very realistic about the fact that we wouldn't exist without fans and members. So our number one focus is always about uh, our members and uh, our customers. So that helps, and I think that keeps us a bit more realistic too. The other side is that the more our players and our staff go out in the community, the more they realize how fortunate we are. Um, and almost every day uh, I speak to someone inside our organization that has had a touch of reality, whether it's a player that's gone down to the bush and spent some time with our indigenous um, uh, friends or those that, um, you know, go into the city and work with the homeless or, the, you know, those suffering from um, any type of mental health concerns. All of these things impact our lives and impact our, the role we play in society and I think um, that has a huge a huge influence on their behaviours on and off the court. One of the hard balancing acts today <coughs> excuse me, is sport is business. It's not just recreation, entertainment. You have to get that bottom line and is that a difficult thing because again talking to a friend of mine who went they said their child absolutely loved the wildcat experience what your mascot does and just it is something that really strikes a chord with the children which are your fans of the future yes well to answer the first part of your question uh, we have a very uh, common theme here and that is is that we don't exist to make a profit uh, instead we believe we make a profit uh, so we can exist and it might seem like a cliche, but it's very important. And everyone here believes in it. That you know, um, even if guardian angels ran this organisation, they would need to make a profit so that we can continue to pay our bills and do the good work that we do. And and I believe that uh, we do a lot of good work, um, not just playing basketball, but the numerous other things we do around it. And so. Yes, there's always that focus to make ends meet and hopefully with the support of those around us uh, we can continue to do so. Um, so that's the first part of, of your question. And look, on the, on the other side of it, in terms of people having a good time, we know that basketball is a foreign sport. It's not like cricket or the AFL. So if someone's coming to watch a game of basketball, they're coming for a whole range of reasons, not just the game. And of the two hours you're going to spend at the arena, uh, only 40 minutes of it is basketball. So we've got to find a way to deliver another 80 minutes of fun and entertainment and, and memories. You know, our, That whole two, 
two hours has got to be about good memories, and we try very hard to do that. We don't often get it right, uh, but we certainly try to every time we open the doors at the Perth Arena. And the third part of that uh, equation is that we're very family-focused. We we believe that um, here we're a family, um, and that we are owned by a family, the Bendat family, and Jack and Eleanor Bendat. And that family theme runs right through our organization and the way we treat our, our own people, but also the way we treat our fans. So we feel that if we can take care of families, especially young families with young children, um, on and off the court, whether it's watching a game or going to schools, uh, I think we're fulfilling a really important role in our community and we, hopefully uh, we can continue to do so. You mentioned the Perth Arena. Is it is it good to be playing in a, a decent venue now? I mean, the Wildcats used to be at the Entertainment Centre, then at Challenge Stadium, and it, it sort of now you've got a stadium that really seems to be a great venue, and the fans seem to love it. I mean, it looked fantastic in the finals when everyone was decked out in red. Oh, we're very lucky, uh, or should I say blessed, uh, that we have a great venue. It's a remarkably wonderful venue that um, we've always believed from the very first time uh, that we talked about it that it would be great um, and so I think that plays a huge role in our success it plays a huge role in the people that come to watch us play and so we're very grateful for the venue and we certainly wouldn't be where we are today if we didn't have such a wonderful venue to play in um, so we're really thankful to the people of this state who uh, who helped uh, support building this venue, and not just for basketball, but for netball and sport and entertainment, which I think is important um, to lift our spirits, especially when things aren't that great. We've got to touch on the Perth Lynx because you took over the Lynx just this year and after a period of barren times, they managed to make the finals. And, I mean, how did you get that turnaround so quickly? Was it, again, built on those same things you've just discussed? Uh, some of it is. One of the things we wanted to do was to do it right. And we'd never seen this model before, so we took a lot of risk based on what we believed to be the right thing to do and so um, for example unlike other teams we don't have uh, superstars on our women's team um, we pay most of our female athletes a very similar wage uh, which means that we can't afford some of the very very good players um, and we often have to miss out on that but the positive is that all our athletes are full-time and they are well paid they paid more than um, the minimum wage uh, in the men's team so uh, we try to have some gender equality there and same with the support structures we give our female athletes everything that the men have uh, we don't want them to miss out um, that's expensive and uh, right now we haven't been able to make ends meet with the women's team but we hope to uh, very soon uh, does that translate to success i hope so and Look, we've been very lucky again with having a really wonderful group of women that have come on board and that want to make change, uh, both by winning, which they've done so well, and also by representing uh, women in the right way and in, in making sure that we send the right messages, especially to the young, impressionable uh, women and girls in our society who I think have a lot of um, unfair pressures on them in terms of uh, what they look like and how they should act uh, and you know I think this whole 
objectifying of women, which I think has gone overboard in our society, which we're trying to address with the women's team. Um, uh, the sad part of the women's team, which is probably the greatest uh, regret for this last season, our first season, was that um, there hasn't really been that much action in terms of supporting women's sport. There's been a lot of talk about gender equality, um, but I've seen, unfortunately, very little action, particularly from those we thought we would get support from. Um, and so it's, it's very sad, and we hope that will change over time. Um, because I think that represents uh, the reality of what women have to uh, experience in the workforce. Um, so hopefully female CEOs, uh, people of influence who support what we're doing can come on board and, and help us bridge that gap. Um, but right now we get uh, less than 1% of the support for the women that we do for the men, which I think is a travesty that needs to be rectified. Do you feel, though, that, and some people have said this about women's sport, when, especially where you've got a men's team and you've got a women's team, it's ticking a box. It's people haven't got that passion or the drive. The fact that you have them on parity um, shows that you're taking it very seriously. But there are some sports, some teams who it's like, we've got to do this, we'll do it, but we're not going to treat it with the respect it deserves. Yes, and I think it's very naive. And unfortunately... Um, you know, people uh, are not paying as much attention as they should to to what's happening in the community at various levels. With regard to women's sport in particular, there is enormous support to come and watch the team play, and there's enormous support for what the women do as role models. No question about it. What's lacking is the is the support from from broadcast and media, which I think is very sad. And what's lacking is the support from corporate. Um, like I said, there's been a lot of talk by corporates of all types, uh, but there's very little action, and, and that must change. That must change. You did mention you haven't made ends meet with the Perth Lynx at the moment, but you're a shrewd man, and I'm sure it wasn't a one-year plan. I'm sure you're working towards a goal of maybe turning that around in two, maybe three years. Is, would that be true, and fans need not worry? Yes, oh, absolutely. Uh, we must be able to make ends meet if we need to survive. And we knew we would lose money uh, in our first one or two or three years. What we didn't expect was the complete lack of support financially uh, for women's sport. Um, from government, from semi-government and from corporates, it's, it's been a vacuum. Uh, we hope to address that and we hope things will change. Um, but um, but in the short term, uh, we're surviving for the at least for the next few years from the generosity of Jack and Eleanor Bendat. But but um, definitely our our mandate is to make ends meet as soon as we can. Finally, Nick, I mean, I did mention about the players and the loyalty you've got there and how you recruit those. But the other thing that seems to work very well is your coaches. Um, and I do wonder, we had a guest on the show who said the coach has to be on the same page as the CEO and they have to have the same vision. Is that, again, how you've worked in that you've looked at when you've recruited your coaches, they have to share your vision, your beliefs and your moral standards? I think so. I, I think you need to be able to at least share the mission and vision of what you're trying to do with your head coach. You may not necessarily have to share um, everyth everything in terms of the way you behave, and we don't expect that. What we do expect, though, is that 
uh, every coach that comes here um, as his primary role sees himself or herself as a developer of people. Um, that's the number one uh, responsibility of a good coach, that one must always make their people and themselves um, be focused on getting better every day. If we can achieve that uh, through humility and hard work and constant, um, and you know, constant appetite for uh, learning and employing as many people that have those values, which we try to do as coaches, um, then things work. Um, they don't always work. Uh, it is very uh, difficult to have that um, that sense of. Uh, desire to serve and be a servant leader of people it's hard to be it's hard to lead with uh, by example all the time it's difficult uh, not we're all human and it's we make mistakes and it's also hard not to uh, be intoxicated by the the um, you know the the success that we have and that's a surefire way to start losing um, so sometimes we must remind ourselves and remind our coaches and each other that um, the success is fleeting, uh, that we must start again. And in sport, you start again every season. And so you cannot let uh, the past influence your, your hunger and your work ethic and your desire for success, and more importantly, improving every day. Um, I think right now we have a great uh, group of leaders in the coaching staff, and I hope that they will stay with us and continue to build on what we have so far. Well, it's been a great journey so far, Nick, and long may it continue. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, and, uh, you know, thanks for the chat. Hi, I'm Thomas and Henry Hahn, and you are listening to Not The Foodie Show. Well, that was Nick Marvin, the head man at the Perth Wildcats and the Perth Lynx, and I think... It's really interesting to hear some of his thoughts on how he structures the team and also how he's disappointed that the support hasn't been there, which we touched on at the start of this podcast for the women's game. But what I find amazing is how he managed to get the women, the first year they're in charge of them, managed to get them in the finals. And after years and years of, of heartache for the ladies' side... Um... I'm not, I wonder what it really is, what, what the turnaround is. Is it a coaching turnaround? Is it just a vibe that they bring, that suddenly people can walk a bit taller because they know they're involved with a, an organisation that has success? Or It's obviously intangible things. Yeah, there's, there's one thing I think I found, John, and, and this might sound a really pathetic thing, but to me it was really an interesting thing. I was sat in reception waiting to go in to have that conversation with Nick Marvin. And while I was sitting there, there were four staff, because it was early in the morning, coming into work. Now, we've all sat in reception, and how often is it people just come in, walk past, don't say anything? Every single one of those staff members said, good morning, uh, are you being looked after, and can I help you? Yeah. Every single one of them. There was not one walk past. And I thought, wow. Because most offices, at least one will walk past having a bad day before it's even started and doesn't want to say it. But every single one of them was polite, friendly, and asked if I was okay. And I just thought that is, again, a reflection of the setup they have there, that it seems everybody in every department is pulling together. If only they could drop a little bit of Wildcats magic dust over the rest of the competition. Because you know, basketball is still struggling in a lot of ways. They've just lost another side. I think it's Townsville's pulled out. So, um, you know, it's hard to 
look at the success of the Wildcats and not question why it is the basketball is not having the same success across the whole competition because it's obviously got support. I mean, thousands of kids and adults play basketball. I mean, the, the other interesting thing I think that, that Nick touched on, though, there is, is the television ratings have tended to plateau. They've not gone back up. They have just flatlining at the moment. And the other thing he told me was that playing at the Perth Arena, he goes, we don't give free tickets away. He goes, we cannot afford to give free tickets away because of what it costs us mm. to play there. Yeah. He said, if we did, we would be losing huge amounts of money. So he goes, I'm afraid when we play at the arena, he goes, every ticket's paid for. Yeah, and that's which is a good lesson for a lot of other codes as well because you know it's a bugbear mm-hmm. one. I think there is too many codes give too many free tickets away and make it look like they're being more successful than they are. And you know sometimes the venue may go, well, you're getting crowds of this, so we're going to put the rate up, rent up, and then they're in even more trouble. Well, I I wouldn't include personally. I wouldn't include free tickets in the official crowd figure. I agree with that. I totally it, agree. You know, that. it should be. Paying customers only, not freebies, not people who are just not coming. people through the turnstiles. Yeah, you know what what gets paid for is the official crowd figure. No, I agree a hundred percent. Now, just before we wind up, uh, I'm heading over to London for the men's champions trophy, and uh, obviously Australia will be looking at this as a final warm up for the Olympic Games, and it'll be interesting, I think, how that all pans out. It's Probably there's one more Champions Trophy supposedly after this, which I think is a great shame. I think it should keep going. But we've got Germany, India, Belgium, South Korea, Great Britain and Australia. And of course, Great Britain had a really tough series against Australia until mm. that very last test match at the Perth Hockey Stadium where Jamie Dwyer playing his last game on Australian soil. Man, that guy, he's, he's got fairy dust, I think, twinkled on him. Scores the winner in the Olympics. He scores the opening goal in his final game in Australia and the final goal in a 5-1 victory. Well, I've got my signed uh, Kookaburra's Jamie Dwyer shirt. Uh, had that in the cupboard for a few years now. He's a jet. He is an absolute jet. And it's funny when you come up against guys that have been playing against him, and I'm talking young guys in the early 20s, they just marvel at what he's still capable of doing. But he's that you talk about dedicated to your sport. I mean, he is so dedicated, still trains so hard and still does his homework on every before every game. He watches videos of other players, etc. I mean, I know all the other players do, but he has... Ne- if you talk to any of the other players, they'll tell you, Jamie is a hockey nerd. Uh, was it you that showed me the footage of him at training? I think uh, around the cones yes. and doing that yeah. sort of stuff? And it's just phenomenal. I mean... He's just a hugely, hugely highly skilled person. I mean, what he's doing essentially almost has nothing to do with hockey. It's just brilliant. But I, I think that the, the coaches have got a really tough job finalising their team. I wrote down my team the other day who I thought would go, when you think only 16 players can be selected for the Olympics. You get two reserves, don't you? Yeah, but they stay outside, outside of the village. village well, in yeah. fact, you're allowed three now if you're oh, two reserves are not goalkeepers. Um, but it's still very, very difficult to know, who, and it has to be a genuine injury, you know, that they're not going to recover from for you to bring in the reserve. That would be a terrible position to be in as the reserve, to be there but not be there. Because you, be, you have to be in Rio yep. or very close by. So you're going to be sort of there and 
in that, but you're going to be outside of it as well. You're not going to... Well, I was talking to Andrew Charter, who was the reserve in London for Nathan Burgers, and he was saying he reckons it is the worst position because you don't stay in the village, although you have a pass that you can go into the village. He goes, you can go everywhere that a normal athlete can do. You're not going to play. You can train with them. Yeah. But he goes, and then on a game day, you cannot go on the pitch. So he goes, you get, you can walk to the tunnel, edge of the tunnel, and that's it. You cannot go out on that uh. pitch or anything. And he said, it's horrible. It, it's, you know, really, he goes, you have to be, it takes a real mental skill to get through that. And the other side of it is, you're only going to get a game if one of your mates hurts themselves. And that, badly. Badly, yeah. I mean, that, that can also, you know, gee, I'm... I'm the broken leg guy or something. It can play on you. Yeah, I mean, and I, I, the, the one thing I think that is nice is, is that most of these guys, they get on so well that they're not sitting there willing that one of them gets injured. I mean, I've known a lot of cricketers willing a guy to get out so they can get in if the bowling's really easy. Yeah, that does happen. Or if they're just batting slowly. I know plenty of people used to wish I was out there. <laughs> I think batting slowly is a bit different, but I think it's some who just you know know they're vying for a spot and they want the other guy to fail miserably. And I have known people run them out deliberately as well. Yeah, that's happened the odd occasion or two on yeah. the cricket pitch. But getting back to the Champions Trophy, I mean, I think the gap between... It's the top six in the world. I think the gap between one and six is a lot closer now than it was, say, 15 years ago. And any one of those teams could make the final. Whether or not... Uh, a six-ranked team is going to be capable of beating on the day. The first-ranked team is debatable, but they're certainly capable of getting there. Well, you've just hit the nail on the head as to why the players I've spoken to have said they want the Champions Trophy to remain. Because they said it is the one tournament where you do play the top teams in the world and you can't afford to drop a game. Whereas, you know in the Olympics, for example, Brazil is there this time. And I'd be very surprised if Brazil get a draw or get close oh, to a win in any game. That's a buy. Yeah, so that's right. So you know you're going to win that game. And there are other teams that are there which, you know, with all due respect to them, are below the top 10 in the world who you would expect the top six that you've just touched on to beat them every single time. There might be an upset, but it's unlikely. Uh, and that's where the Champions Trophy... They know every single game you have to be at your best. It'll be interesting to see how teams approach it because it's the last tournament before the Olympics. It'll be, a, for a lot of them, their last hit out before yep. the Olympics. Now, do you go... It's Champions Trophy is a big trophy in hockey. Do you go out to win it and thereby perhaps giving away a few secrets that you've been trying to develop in the lead-up to the Olympics? Do you, how, how exactly do coaches look at this tournament so close to an Olympic Games? And the other thing you've got, which you haven't touched on there, John, is players are going to be going, I want to be in the Olympics, but if they think they're already there, are they going to ease up and not get to not get injured? Um, there's always that in the back of the mind. I, look, I think this tournament shouldn't be played now. I think it's, you know, four weeks before the Olympic selection. It's probably, to me, uh, a little bit late in the piece. It either needed to be after the Olympic Games or a little bit earlier. But it's, it is going to be interesting, and I think there are, will be some teams are definitely going out there to win when you look at their squads. Uh, Germany have picked a few young players, whether they think they're going to be late bolters for their team. 
It's it's going to be interesting to see. Australia has no Mark Knowles, but he is not injured. He's being rested because his wife is about to give birth to their third child. So that's why he's staying at home, just in case anyone is wondering. Yeah, that's uh, you know comes back to how the teams approach it, doesn't it? Oh, are we going to try a few guys here? Do we mess with this? Do we have a look at that? Or do we just go hell out to win it? I think most of the teams want to win it. Well, you know what sportsmen are like. Once you get on the field, it doesn't matter what sort of machinations have been going on off the field. Blokes... Women play to win. That no one walks it very. I'm sure occasionally it's happened, but very few people ever have walked out on a sports field and go, right, I'm going to throw this one. Maybe that 1921 Boston Red Sox team or whoever it was. I've probably got that completely wrong. But players just don't do that. It's not in their mindset. And even even when you pick an experimental team of youth up against the best team in the world, that experimental team of youth, no one else expects them to win. But they expect they're going to put in a performance that can win the game. When they walk out there, they, they're going, I'm trying to win this game. I want to win. Well, we'll you be wouldn't to... be at that level if you didn't want to win. People who want to win succeed. And I think we'll wait and see who does come out on top and who does, in fact, go there with an experimental squad. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we'll be back with another very shortly. See ya. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. See ya. We'll be back next week.